You're listening to the 1208 Podcast from 1208 Greenwood Free Methodist Church in downtown Jackson, Michigan. Hopping back into Luke, and today, if you have a Bible on you, it would be helpful to have it out. If you don't have a Bible on you, if you have a phone on you, it would be helpful to have it out. If you don't have a phone, it's 2023, y'all. No, I'm just kidding. I don't know. JK, JK. Uh, (laughs) We're going to hop into a few passages, but I'm going to kick it off with our main passage out of Luke 24. Verse 36, Jesus has been resurrected. He's appeared to the women who were the first apostles to go out and share the good news with the disciples who are hiding behind locked doors. And then Jesus walks down the road to Emmaus and shares more of the scriptures to help these two disciples that are with him understand more about uh, who God is and how he has gone about bringing about the Messiah and Jesus' death and resurrection. The disciples' hearts are burning within them as they hear Jesus open the scriptures to them. And now he goes to his disciples who are scared and hiding. And this is verse 36. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said, Peace to you. Hard to have peace when someone just appears in a room out of nowhere, right? But resurrected Jesus, just like, Foom. hey guys, what's up? <laughs> you know, like, what are, what are we supposed to react to this here? Peace to you, is what Jesus says. And they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a pneuma, which is a spirit. It's a ghost. They thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts rise in your heart? See me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. When he had said this, He showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Resurrected Jesus is a very hungry person. He's seen eating a few different times. But resurrected Jesus also eats to prove that he is a person, that he is flesh and bone, that, yes, he is now also this supernatural being. Paul talks about the resurrection of Christians and of Jesus' body being something made of earth, Adam, but also something made of heaven, Jesus. So it operates both like an angel and a human. So Jesus can, yes, appear in locked rooms like an angel, but also, yes, can eat broiled fish, though we certainly hope that there is better food in the afterlife. He took and ate it before them, and he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Let me read that again. Everything written about me, so Jesus sees himself being written about in Scripture, in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. In other words, the whole Old Testament, Jesus is like, it's about me. I'm all over the place back there. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Before this moment, there was plenty about the Bible that they did not understand. But in Jesus, 
In this moment, through his teaching, it all starts to make sense. Stuff that has been there for hundreds to thousands of years before Jesus, but never made sense or was uncovered until this very moment. That's, that's, a, that's a powerful moment. When you come across scriptures, you're like, oh, I never saw this before, and it's been written down forever. And he said to them, thus is it, it is written that the Christ should suffer, and on the third day rise from the dead. And the repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending you the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. That right there is our main passage and part that I really want to zoom into today because I've preached many parts of this passage before. I want to preach about the scripture. This is a wonderful book filled with all kinds of authors. There's 66 books in here written at different times, written in different places, written in different generations with different seasons of life and different cultural baggage. The first half of the scriptures are primarily written in Hebrew, though there's some scriptures that are written in other languages. And some, some books of the Bible are even written in two languages. They seem to switch along the way. I think Daniel is, is one of them. And then the New Testament is written in a different time. When they've gone into exile, they live among people that speak a different language, and so they all start speaking Greek and Aramaic. So this thing is, is wonderful because it's, it's God's scripture. He didn't just like put people in a trance and then they just like, you know, wrote it all down in a, some kind of crazy style. But he wrote it in a way that, that he often inspires people where he is speaking to people, nudging them along the way as they are writing this divine holy scripture. Now, part of the problem with scripture is that we think it's Father, Son, and Holy Bible. And scripture becomes a part of our trinity. And then we start going into some really crazy territory where we're, we start using words to describe it like inerrant. In other words, like, it is completely void of any error whatsoever, which then makes people feel crazy because they read it and they're like, well, I come across spots that don't exactly line up. So there's four gospel accounts. And sometimes Jesus feeds 4,000. Sometimes he feeds 5,000. Sometimes he does it twice. Sometimes he does it once. There's a garrison demoniac, except in one of the gospels, there's two garrison demoniacs. So Jesus took care of three garrison demoniacs, like, is there an error here or did it happen twice and what am I? And, and we put people in this crazy place where like it all happens like perfectly because there's no discretion here. There's no contradictions. In fact, I've heard that preached before where people are like, there's no contradictions in the Bible. I'm like, have you read the Proverbs? <laughs> because the Proverbs will tell you one thing to always do. And then later in a proverb, it will tell you the exact opposite to always do. So is that not a contradiction? No, like to understand scripture, you really have to dive in and embrace it right because it's a very confusing, dense, ancient book. This requires a lot of work on our part to understand. And when we see those confusing proverbs that are like vice versa each other, one of the things that we learn is like there's actually proverbs for different situations. Sometimes the right thing to do 
is this extreme. And yet other times the right thing to do is the exact opposite. And so already I have to read the scriptures with the Proverbs in mind thinking, I have to show discretion as to what part of the scriptures I'm going to live out based on any given scenario, right? It happens time and time again that we come across a whole lot of confusion between passages and a whole lot of different glimpses of God between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It really messed with the new Christians. When people started getting saved after Jesus was resurrected in the early church, people started inventing unfortunate heresies because they were so confused about the loving God of the New Testament and the angry warlike God of the Old Testament. So some popular new Christians invented heresies that were like, well, it's a different God in the New Testament. <laughs> Guys, this isn't the solution to, to your problem. But we have to like pave ways to like understand because if Jesus is the ultimate revelation of who God is, like more so than any other revelation in the entire scriptures, Old and New Testament, if the Gospels are the most central understanding of what God is like, because when you see Jesus, you've seen the Father, and the Father looks like someone dying on a cross to love you, well, then the Old Testament and New Testament start to need to make sense only in Jesus. In fact, that's what just happened right here. Jesus comes before his disciples and he starts to explain the scripture and it starts to make sense to them in a way that it never did before. And one of the ways in which Jesus continues to do that today for his followers is by giving us the Holy Spirit who comes to read the scriptures with us. You got to read it with the Holy Spirit or a lot of your takeaways can end up going in a lot of different directions. And it's really funny, we just had uh, SBL, Society of Biblical Literature. It's this huge event that happens every year. This year it happened in Texas uh, last week. And scholars from all across the world get together for this massive Bible event. And yet tons of them, if not many of them, are atheists. Many of your Bible scholars are atheists <laughs> because they haven't come to the scriptures with the Holy Spirit. They've come just studying it from a scholarly perspective, which then takes them into all these directions of, of just ancient studies, which then eventually kind of breaks down their mind and they're just like, eh, we'll just study this academically. I don't know if God's actually real or not anymore. And so you end up with many of your top scholars, people reading the Bible, aren't doing it alongside the Holy Spirit. They're just doing it as a, a like archaeological historical study. That doesn't mean that the stuff that they uncover is wrong because we can learn a lot from historical studies and from archaeologists. But already the way in which they read scripture is different than the way that Jesus just taught his disciples to read scripture. The disciples had to read it alongside Jesus for it to make sense. But the way in which many at SBL would read it, uh, they would read it from a uh, just scribe perspective. So there's different ways to read your Bible. This is why a lot of people can like become atheists, read the Bible, and then have lots of stuff to throw at Christians. Like they're right, because when they read things, they come across a lot of things like, I don't know what to make sense of this. I don't know how to do with this. I don't, I was told this thing was completely perfect with no problems and I've come across this confusing spot or Jesus doesn't seem to match God's personality back here. What do I do with all this? And when Christians' reactions to scripture are just like, oh, well, there's no contradictions, it's perfect and you misunderstand, that's kind of a cop-out. 
I did that on the bus on a field trip once in seventh, eighth grade. <laughs> Doesn't matter, does it? I remember I had I had uh, someone on the school bus next to me start talking about Jesus. And I'm like, I just don't get it. And as a young guy, I didn't know any of the answers. And I was just like, well, it's all in here if you just read it, you know. And they're like, I don't think it is, though. I've looked for these answers before. I was like, well, if you read it, it's there. You know, like that just became my answer over and over again. And they'd give a good rebuttal about why the Bible was confusing. and be like, it's not confusing, though. You know, like just my answers were very Christianese and unhelpful to somebody who didn't have the Christianese background, who wanted to understand it more, but I was just cutting them off at the lakes, not giving them the space to know it. So I want to show you just a few different ways that you can read scriptures, because I personally, I have, I have two really big enjoyments when I read scripture. One is from a scribe perspective, okay? So the scribes in ancient times, the scribes that show up in your Bible, their job was to be educated scholars of the scriptures. Their job was actually to copy the scriptures word by word. They would write it down because they didn't have printing back then, right? And they were so trusted with their education that if they came across something confusing in the scriptures that they were copying, they could actually decide to change the word that they were copying because they might assume in their educated mind that the scribe before them made a mistake. This is part of the reason you have so many different copies of, of Bible books out there um, is because scribes will change things along the way. Sometimes they'll do it by accident. We have times in the Bible where like someone was copying and then they looked up and then they looked down, but they went to a different word. Have you ever done that when you're typing something? The scribes did that too. We have evidence in the Cain and Abel story. There's a whole sentence missing because we found some manuscripts that show us like a scribe that gave us our most popular copy looked up and down and missed something. That happens. Um, but uh, the scribes were that kind of level of educated that people trusted them to teach, to make decisions, and to share about the word of God. Uh, and so on one side of things, I like to read the Bible in a very kind of educational kind of way. So let me give you an example as to what we might do if we were to pursue the educational side of the Bible and how that really changes things. And if we don't do it, how we confuse stuff. So if you want to read Revelation 13, 18, this one's just one verse, okay? Check this out. John in the book of Revelation tells us this, this calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is, anybody? 666. So what are the interpretations that you've heard of this? Go ahead, throw them out there. We've all heard the wacky stuff. Yeah, branded. COVID, microchips, microchips in your brain, RFID codes. Uh, the barcode was a big deal at one point, wasn't it? Everybody thought the barcode was the mark of the beast. Things like this. Okay, already we are not thinking with our educated scriptural minds because we're trying to apply this to our lives right now. Who is John writing to? Specifically, he was writing to seven churches. This was a letter that was written for seven churches 
that were supposed to be circulated among them. He's writing to those seven people, and he says, let the one who has understanding calculate this number. He was not writing to you to calculate the number. He was trying to say something specific that he knew that somebody in every church would be able to figure out his riddle, right? And then he tells us it is the number of the beast, it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Now, we are completely removed from this time frame, but there was an old tradition in uh, Hebrew language called gematria. Maybe you've heard of this, maybe you haven't. But it was the idea that every letter in the Hebrew alphabet or every letter in the alphabet in general uh, could equal a number. So let's just make something up for English. A is one, B is two, C is three. And then Jamin would be J plus A plus M plus I plus N, okay? And I don't know what the math is because I don't do math. But that would be an example. Now, Bible scholars today have puzzled over this riddle. Instead of trying to think, what does 666 mean today? They're trying to think, if John expected the people in these seven churches to be able to interpret this riddle, what might they have done? Could they have used gematria? Well, at the time, Nero Caesar was uh, a very beastly-like ruler. Christians were experiencing a lot of persecution under Nero Caesar. Nero Caesar in Latin... If you were to add all those numbers together, guess what number it equals? 666. Beast in Greek, guess what that equals? 666. So John already could be playing with people's minds to think, you know how beast equals 666. You know how Nero Caesar equals 666. These two things together, think about it. John is trying to write. I assume this is the interpretation that's made the most sense to me. John is trying to write to people about Nero Caesar. Now, if your letter gets picked up by Nero Caesar and you've already been exiled on an island to be away from everybody, and Nero's like, hey, this guy's talking trash about me. <laughs> what do you think is going to happen to John? They're going to kill him, right? So John has to find a way to write under the radar so that people will catch up on it. Now, some scribes, there are some manuscripts of Revelation out there where the number is not 666, it's 616. Why did a scribe change it? Guess what Nero means if you take out Caesar? 616. And so somewhere, some scribe was like, Nero, Caesar, that's too much math for them. They're not gonna, this particular church can't count that high. Let's go a little lower. Nero, 616. Yeah, they'll get it now. In which case, it shows us like this scribe already understood, like, I see what he's trying to say. This particular audience isn't going to get it that way. I'm just going to make it a little more simple for them and just go for Nero. So like, this is an example right here. If this is correct, which for me, it's always made the most sense, but there's lots of interpretations out there. If this is correct, how did we arrive at that conclusion? education, scribal, scholarly work. We had to do historical research today to think like someone might have thought in the first century to then be able to translate things into a tradition that they had to make sense for us. You cannot just do that on the fly. And after we started printing off the Holy Scriptures for everyone to read in every household, we started getting the weirdest interpretations that John never meant 
John did not see RFID chips or barcodes. John was just trying to explain something in his own time and place. And so we see already, like, yes, the, the like, scriptural size of things are important. And it can actually be dangerous even to read our Bible without a scholarly guide. If you're looking for someone to go that with you, of course, you can go to church. But uh, the Bible Project and several other podcasts out there that Bible scholars now do, like the world is full of richer research than it ever has before. And so it is easier to embrace the Bible on a deeper level than it's ever been before. Let me give you one more example. Genesis 15, no, Genesis 8, 18 through 27. I have to talk about this one um, in ways that children may not pick up on, all right? Y'all y'all tracking with me here? Now that I've gotten all their attention. Genesis 18, 18 says this. Sorry, Genesis 8, 18. This is a strange passage. This has not made sense to so many of us. And I'm going to give you an interpretation that, in my opinion, is the only one I've heard that makes sense of everything in this passage to the best that I can. This is a story about uh, Noah. 9.18. My goodness, I wrote this down wrong. Okay. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Parentheses, Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah. From these people, the whole earth were dispersed. Now, maybe you've heard this story before. It's a weird one. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what the youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. Okay. Is this really a story about how one day a few sons saw their father's nakedness and got cursed for it. I'd be with Marie. That doesn't make a lot of sense. There's certainly some crazier stuff in the Old Testament that happens. I'm confused why this one comes with a curse. But if we were to pay attention to the way that uh, their father's, a father's nakedness is referred to in Hebrew idioms, if we went to Leviticus, guess what we would find? Your father's nakedness is your mother's nakedness. It's a euphemism, in other words. They have seen something here that may not necessarily be their father. But one of them is in trouble. Which one's in trouble? Ham, right? But who is this story about in the end? It's about who? No, we, it, it starts about someone and it ends about someone. Huh? Noah? Well, even, even before that, it starts somewhere else. It's in parentheses in my Bible. 
Canaan. This is an origin story. Ham has had forbidden relations leading to the creation of someone who has not been born yet. Therefore, Canaan then becomes the point of a curse between forbidden relations between... Is everybody catching my drift here? Do I have to keep explaining? Okay. It, <laughs> Tasha, your face is priceless right now. <laughs> you add to this, this is like... The flood is like this huge cosmic problem, and then it's followed by this kind of incest moment. If you fast forward to Sodom and Gomorrah, which is a smaller cosmic problem, it's followed by an incest moment. So you have even these moments echoing each other throughout Scripture, giving us even more understanding of, eh, I see what's going on here. Now, we only arrive at that by studying Scriptures, and not just by reading Genesis alone, but by reading more of the Old Testament so that we see the euphemism, so that we see the idiom. Now, all that being said, those are some of the scholarly ways in which we need to read Scripture. Those stories, both of them, I don't think make any sense until you have had a scribe come alongside you to say, I've been doing research, archaeological studies, and all these things and more. Here's what I uncovered. And suddenly they're like, hey, did not see that before, right? But there's also spiritual ways to read the Scriptures where God has to come alongside you to open your eyes because that's what he did for the disciples, the Sadducees thought there was nothing about resurrection in the Old Testament. And what did Jesus say to them? He called them fools. He was surprised that they couldn't see resurrection. Even scholars today often say there's not much about resurrection in the Old Testament. And Jesus would probably say to us the same thing. That's foolish. There's plenty. You just need to look for it. And so I wonder... When Jesus came alongside the disciples and started explaining the scriptures to them, how many places about resurrection was Jesus like, hey, you remember this passage? Let me flip it on its head. Remember this passage? Let me flip it on its head. The only way for them to come to understand that was through revelation, not scholarly stuff, but revelation. So, for example, when God tells Abraham one day that his descendants will be like the stars of the heavens, for most of us, we're thinking that means that, like, there's going to be a lot of them. Count the stars, Abraham. But stars in the ancient world, those were thought to be spiritual beings, immortal beings. And suddenly we're like, oh, that's what the resurrection's about. God told Abraham, your descendants are going to be like spiritual immortal beings one day. Oh, I did not catch resurrection there before, but... As the Spirit has opened my eyes, and I've come also at the same time to think of this in a scholarly way, it starts to make sense. And so when you come to the Scriptures, it's important to come with both sides of understanding it. This is a complicated book. You need someone to go with you. It needs to be the Holy Spirit. And you also need somebody to guide you through stuff that we otherwise don't know unless we study it. There's a lot to go there. And sometimes God even uses the scriptures in strange ways um, where he'll give you a passage that if you were to put it in context, it would mean nothing to you. But sometimes he uses that exact passage to speak directly to you. I don't know if you've had this happen before. There's times where I'll be reading my Bible and a verse pops in a way that has never popped before. And I feel the spirit just saying like, this is for you right now. Jamin, and I felt him say this before. 
Jamin, do not study this verse or you're going to confuse what I'm saying to you right now. Just hear these words. I'm speaking them over you. There was one time where I woke up from a dream with a song in my head and I felt like God was saying something to me instantly uh, through those lyrics. And then I stopped and I thought about it. I was like, well, well, these lyrics could mean 10 different things. Oh, what does it mean? What does it mean? Which way are you trying to say it, God? Is it positive? Is it negative? What do I do? And then I went to bed and I had another dream where someone was singing a worship song and they sang these words. I sing between the lines. <laughs> and I woke up and I was like, oh, I feel that. Like the first interpretation I had of that first dream was like God singing right to me wasn't supposed to be overly complicated. He was singing between the lines that I would hear exactly it the way I needed to. And then I shut down what he was trying to say by interpreting it like a hundred different ways. When we're working with the spirit, we have to learn to be discerning, to be um, smart, to be scholarly, but also to be open, to be moldable. This is his word. He's written it for us. But you know what else is the word of God? It's Jesus. And you know who else is Jesus? It's the spirit of Jesus, known as the Holy Spirit. And so if we don't read the word with the word, and if we don't read the word with some knowledge of history, it won't make sense. And we'll end up with a lot of weird interpretations, which is part of the reason that a lot of the world does not trust us these days. Because we come saying like, no, 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 it's exactly as this says, the world was made in seven days, that's the end of the story. Whereas that was not even the main things that the people who wrote the creation account were trying to tell us. They are not even concerned with how many days God made the world. Their concern was much more theological. And there's about 50 sub points they're making in that before it even becomes something about science or supernatural. All right. So uh, I know I've gone over, so I won't keep you. But we've dove into um, just talking about scripture today. This is God's holy word. This is what my entire job is based off of. So before you walk out of here thinking I have belittled this, this is my favorite book. This is where, <laughs> this is where I teach out of. But we have to learn to read it the right way. And I think when we elevate it to become a part of the Trinity, we often make it so supernatural that we miss much of what it's trying to do because we don't calm ourselves down to read it with the Holy Spirit who is actually God's word. So Jesus, we come before you. This is your word. We want to understand it better. We want to understand it more richly. We know it's dense. We know it's complicated. We know it was written over thousands of years through many different people uh, inspired by your spirit. We need help because we were not there. We are much later down the timeline we want to come closer to you, and your word can give us the ability to do that. And Jesus, if you can speak to your disciples to make it all pop for them, then you can make it pop to us through the Holy Spirit. So help us read together when we're with one another, and when we read on our own, may you come and, and reveal to us what you're saying, and also sing between the lines, that it would have an effect on us in this moment today. Not just something we read about what happened in history, but something that speaks straight to our hearts and in 2023. So we give our hearts to you. We give our Bibles to you. We ask your spirit go with us. In Jesus' name, amen.